0: Hi, I'm Chris Wigley, CEO of Genomics England. I've spent my career at the intersection of technology, ethics, and human stories. Now, I lead the amazing team here at Genomics England. We're trying to bring the benefits of genomic medicine to everyone, and that involves accelerating genomic research and also working with the NHS to bring genomics into the heart of healthcare. Genomics is a word that can trigger really strong responses, hope, fear, anger, and there's a lot of information out there But it's not all accessible to non-experts and there are some myths out there so we want to talk more about this word the g word genomics that's what this podcast is about welcome to the g word it is my huge pleasure to be joined on the g word today um, by rob anna who is the president and the ceo of genomics canada and I should uh, confess at this point that I was actually born in Vancouver. And so Canada is a place that is uh, dear to my heart. Rob, welcome to the pod.
1: Awesome. It's great to be here, Chris. Always nice to chat with a fellow Canadian. Uh, thrilled for the conversation today. I've been looking forward to this.
0: Fantastic. So first of all, maybe just unpack a little bit for us what Genomics Canada does and what you do within that context. And then maybe we can... Um, like step back a little bit and understand a little bit about your personal journey but like give us the give us the genomics canada uh, pitch
1: sure we're a national not-for-profit research organization so we're not a government agency we exist at arm's length from the government we were created about uh 20 years ago uh actually in the shadow of the human genome project so a little history here. You know, Canada was not actually one of the uh, international partners in the sequencing of the human genome, and scientists in Canada who worked in you know those early days of genomics, um, you know, really kind of you know made a, made a lot of noise to our to our federal government that we needed to make sure that we were on uh, on board with with this new and emerging science. And so, Genome Canada was actually created by the federal government um, in a really sort of grassroots way, led by Canadian scientists to really provide leadership and investment in the field of genomics and to ensure that that Canada would be able to both contribute to and benefit from uh, this exciting new science. So so since then, Genome Canada has supported, in effect, large-scale applied research projects. We are multi-sectoral. So uh, interestingly, and unlike a lot of organizations uh, around the world, we do work in health, but we work beyond health. So about half our portfolio is in health-related research. The other half is in agriculture, natural resources. Canada has lots of forestry, lots of fisheries. Uh, we work in energy. We work in mining. You know, in effect, if it has DNA, we work on it. And so, we really do have a broad approach. We fund large-scale applied research projects that are multidisciplinary. So we have a substantial uh, sort of support for social sciences research. Uh, what we call GELs, other others refer to as LC. We call this uh, genomics and its uh, ethical, environmental, uh, economic, and legal implications. We really do take a broad approach to genomics, but we do work on large-scale partnered research projects that are applied. We are a national organization, so Canada has some interesting constitutional arrangements, which I'm sure we'll get into, but there are real divisions uh, between the federal and provincial levels. So we work nationally through six genome centers that operate regionally, and because of that we have a really, um, you know, a very kind of a collaborative and coordinated approach to to project development and management. Uh, About 40% of our funding actually comes from the federal government, the rest comes from other levels of government, but we also have significant investment from industry, charities, and other and other sources. So we really see ourselves as um as as coordinators, as conveners, uh with a strategic lens on genomics for Canada, um, but a very broad cross-sectoral approach.
0: What a what a fascinating breadth of uh role. Maybe one more question on the on the current role and then then we can um talk about your journey. How do you know if you're doing a good job? Like what are the sort of indicators, the straws in the wind that say to you yeah, this is working. You know, genomics is getting, you know, having impact in Canada um, or, or not.
1: Yeah, so we are we are all about impact. So we are very much, I, I sort of, I mentioned that we work on applied research projects. Uh, for us, it's all about implementation, and that can be implementation within the health system, but that could also be implementation in terms of new tools for, uh, you know, either uh, mitigating or adapting to co- climate change. It could be economic impact, uh, the development of whether it's spin-off companies, intellectual property in various ways. We also really track impact when it comes to training and students. Uh, as well as the impact we have when it comes to uh, you know equity and diversity, and and so we have a variety of metrics across which we really look at the ways that we're impacting kind of the our, our overall mission, which is really to get genomics into the hands of those who will use it. And so we really see our roles as a, as kind of you know in the, in the area of both research support, but knowledge translation, mobilization, and implementation. And so for us, you know, I would say of course genomics has changed a lot. You know, in the early days, we were more about building foundations, whether it was infrastructure. or Kind of the, the human element, you know, building up cohorts of, of researchers. Today, we're much more um, uh, kind of driven by grand challenges uh, and and really measuring our impact in terms of how uh, how genomics is being used.
0: Super cool. And so, tell us a little bit about how you wound up in this incredible kind of spider in the middle of the web type role. Um, you know, do you have a deep genomics background yourself, or like where have you come from?
1: Well, you know, even as a young child I dreamed of being president of Genome Canada and no I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Straight
0: straight career. Path. <laughs>
1: yeah, I mean careers only make sense uh in, in retrospect, right? So and mine mine definitely has some a few twists and turns. So I trained as a biochemist in genomics, earned my PhD from McGill University. These were kind of the early days of genomics. Uh, you know, whatever I bashed my research career the, against the rocks in those early days of figuring out how to do things uh, in, in a rapidly developing space. But I actually started my undergraduate work was all in uh, in the humanities. My I have an undergraduate degree in in literature, and that was that was my first love and and remains a, a major love. But but I did fall in love with the science, particularly in those early days as we were starting to sequence the human genome and so on. And and so I actually went back to school, uh, ended up with a PhD in genomics. Uh, loved the science, uh, was, uh, was, in, was inspired by its use, but ended up actually on a path that took me out of the, out of the lab and into um, the science policy space, which is really where I've spent most of my career. So I've, I've worked in a variety of roles in research administration, in um, consulting, uh, in relations with government, think tanks, always at this intersection of, of research, innovation, and society. And really trying to understand the ways in which we take the, the enterprise of science, which I, I think is one of the most marvelous inventions that humans have ever uh, come up with, how we how we move that science forward in through amazing discoveries. And then we take the benefits that come from those discoveries, and we translate those into impacts in people's lives. And make sure that those impacts are widely shared, that they contribute to well-being, whether that's you know, social well-being, health well-being, economic well-being, uh, and so on. And so at that interface, you know, so I've worked in a variety of roles in uh, in other organizations, and then I, I came back to Genome Canada uh, about five years ago, and I've been in the role of president and CEO for the last three years. So so I've I've always been really excited by this, um, by, yes, the science, but it's about the, the impact and, and the application of the science and how it benefits uh, society.
0: Very cool. If someone is sitting here as, like, Uh, let's say a student at university or an early career professional, I mean, firstly, I think it's hugely inspiring that you went from literature to a PhD in genomics. I maybe have a bias here because I did computer science and medical history. So uh, (laughs) I I like other people who are also indecisive, but um, I guess (laughs) it's sort of beyond studies. Like, what would you say if someone wanted to kind of break into this space, Um, you know, as you put it between the science, the policy, the, the ecosystem of actors out there, like, who should they send their CV to? Or like, what should they do?
1: <laughs> well, first of all, hit me up on LinkedIn. Uh, and uh, no, but really, I think it's interesting, Chris, you you know, your background as well, right? Like combining disparate kind of subjects like computer science, history, English, genomics, and so on. I think there's a real value in that. I think that in science, we do uh, sometimes encourage and and, and favor deep subject matter expertise at the expense of the ability to think broadly and there's real value in that there's real value in that now that doesn't mean that if you've pursued an undergraduate degree and then a graduate degree and postdoc and so one in a single area that you can't gain that kind of experience outside the, the academic system i think it is valuable and it is important to to, to challenge yourself and to, to think broadly because one of the things about policy is that of course you're balancing out any number of competing priorities and issues and so on and you're trying to integrate a variety of perspectives to maximize impact and science is an important piece of that but it's often not the only piece so i think broad perspectives are important i think um, there's a lot of skills that one wants to develop in this space certainly uh, the ability to do synthesis uh is important and uh ability of kind of writing and communication is is, uh, is certainly very important And then in terms of how to kind of get into this i think you know there are so many opportunities now with social media and online opportunities to sort of start in effect just you know adding your voice to conversations that exist starting conversations you think should exist Uh, i got into this you know i I, not not to age myself but i got into this uh actually during the heyday of blogging the early days and it was really just starting to comment on what i saw in this in the science policy space as a perspective of somebody who was a new scientist but had a broad perspective that allowed me to in a sense kind of learn about things that were maybe a little blind spots to me and build out a bit of a network. So whether it's by, you know, by, you know, getting on podcasts, uh, starting your own podcast or doing TikTok or whatever it is that, you know, people are doing these days. I think there's a real opportunity that way. And then to look for look for ways that you can apply your your specialized expertise in science in a more general way. And that could be through you know, volunteering in your community, that could be getting involved with patient uh, groups, for instance, and in health systems, and um, just looking for ways that push you outside of just your scientific expertise and allows you to apply that in new ways. I think it'd be really valuable.
0: Yeah, no, that that makes a ton of sense. Um, Let's maybe uh, change gear and dive into some of the the work of uh, Genome Canada. You mentioned the healthcare system in Canada more at the regional or state level than the sort of federal level. You know, in the UK, obviously the NHS is its own ecosystem, but the the big chunks are NHS in England, in Scotland, in Wales, in Northern Ireland, I guess there's like some level of parallel there. But like, how does that system work and how do you and the team kind of interface with that?
1: So we'll start with a little bit of a constitutional summary, and I I promise not to go too deep into this, because this gets super boring very quickly. But just to say that, you know, in Canada, we have, um, you know, three layers of government, federal, provincial, municipal, healthcare delivery is the responsibility of the provincial governments. So at the federal level, the federal government... Um, does not have responsibility for uh, the majority of healthcare delivery, which is the responsibility of our provinces. There are exceptions to that uh, when it comes to you know uh, healthcare for military, indigenous peoples, and, and so on. But the majority of frontline healthcare delivery in Canada is done at the provincial level. Uh, Canada, we have ten provinces and three territories. The provinces range in size from large provinces. Ontario has 10, 12 million people, but we have provinces that have on the order of a few hundred thousand people. So it's a huge range, and that, of course, creates challenges when it comes to scale, when it comes to new technology, when it comes to application of things like genomic medicine, for instance. The federal government does, though, have a role to play in the application of the Canada Health Act, which which, in a sense, guarantees a a national standard of service across the country and provides funding to achieve that level. So it's a little messy in the sense that it's really kind of on the ground at the provincial level, but there is a federal kind of oversight and regulatory and funding element. So we live and work in this space, we work very closely with. We, like I said, we have six regional genome centers that we work closely with. They are embedded within their provincial systems. They work with their provincial health care, um, you know, ministries and so on in terms of development of tools and technologies. But in effect, we work on uh, in a couple of key areas. One, general health research at a national level uh, which will create benefits for the provinces because of course we're looking at something like uh you know juvenile arthritis or we're looking at pediatric cancer we have large-scale projects in in a number of areas those often do have for instance economic components that talk about you know kind of implementation uh you know kind of costs and and benefits so we really do try to provide that to the provinces um, as you know as, as opportunity we are working increasingly on implementation projects. So this is finding ways to create connections across provincial boundaries. So for instance, we um, we lead a large-scale national rare disease initiative called All for One. It involves the half dozen largest pediatric hospitals in the country, clinical researchers who are looking at how to actually implement genomic medicine as a standard of care, but also, and importantly, all the provincial kind of ministries are key partners in this. So it's trying to find ways to... I guess, kind of overcome some of the barriers that exist from kind of a policy and constitutional perspective in order to build out these big national initiatives. And then the last thing is increasingly, we're working on developing large scale data initiatives, much like, you know, Genomics England has been able to create this this uh, you know phenomenal resource for, for England and the National Health Service. We're looking at how we do this in Canada, which uh, is going to require very much a federated approach where data is going, is going to remain in the provinces, but can then be uh, used in a, in a collective way to support implementation at that local and regional level. So there's a lot of work to be done there. COVID provided us a huge opportunity to kind of push through some of those barriers, some of which were more significant than others. But, but there's still a long way to go.
0: Yeah. Uh, that's pretty complex. I can, I can appreciate the, uh, the number of you know, moving parts in that system. And with an initiative like, sorry, was it all for one, the rare disease initiative? Yeah. Conscious of the complexities around things like data staying in its, in its own area, what kind of role do Genome you know, Canada play in bringing those actors together or kind of who does what in an, in an initiative like that?
1: Our role is really, in a sense, to bring together as a convener uh, and a coordinator the key decision makers, the key problem solvers, the key technical people, and so on. So we have a variety of, um, of groups that are supported through that initiative, for instance, that are working on issues around data governance, around consent. In some ways, you know, the technical issues are are, are in kind of the most straightforward ones to solve. I mean, someone has to convene the meetings where we actually get together, but, you know, we work very closely. You know, we try to adhere to global standards, you know, the Global Alliance for Genomics and Health, for instance, which is you know based out of Toronto, um, you know, helps to provide, you know, I think general framework on the technical side and also helps to support the conversations we're having when it comes to some of these kind of thornier questions. But we don't have at Genome Canada the mandate or the authority to, in a sense, impose these kinds of, look, this is how we're going to do it. This is the kind of what consent's going to look like. This is how we're going to handle governance. Rather, we actually serve, you know, to kind of create the tables at which yeah. those different actors can come together and find, find mechanisms to do that work.
0: Got it. And um, in terms of the kind of outcomes that you're trying to enable in areas like cancer, red diseases, and and so on, how do you think about the kinds of industrial partnerships that that you as you know Canada have and then i guess you sort of interface with the um the healthcare system does that kind of old cliche about europe is great at turning money into science and america is great at turning science into money um like, where does canada sit on that spectrum and how do you handle concerns or anxieties around you know is Genome Canada just kind of taking my most sensitive data, my DNA, and kind of selling it to companies? Like, how do you set things up so that, you know, the, the relevant folks are all kind of um, on board and, and um, you know, feeling good about shaping these things?
1: That's a really great question. Something that we we think about a lot at Genome Canada, and maybe in a, in a you know, stereotypically Canadian way, we kind of live a little bit in between, kind of in the middle between the kind of the European and, and American tendencies when it comes to money and science. So Canada generally, and and it varies a little bit from province to province, right? So, you know, one has to keep that in mind when we think about, um, you know, kind of health data, but we tend to be a very conservative jurisdiction uh, when it comes to the sharing of data, making data available. And that is particularly true when it comes to um, making it available to industrial partners, to pharmaceutical companies and so on. So there are certainly initiatives largely, you know, at the pilot level to uh, build new partnerships here. I will say that one area where Canada really excels is in launching pilot initiatives. So you know maybe that's our niche you know, when it comes to science as we're the we're the great pilot initiative country. But we do have a number of kind of pilot level initiatives working with with companies. But I would say that when it comes to uh, health data. Uh, we tend to keep things very much at the, even at the local level. So rolling that up into a point where we can actually make that available for um, you know, large-scale access from companies is, is something that um, is, is not where we're at now, and frankly, there's, it's a bit of a culture. it will be a culture shift to make that available. But ironically, and this is something that we, that we talk about a lot when it comes to regulatory environment and so on, while there is a real concern around privacy, Canadians by the thousands are sending their their DNA to 23andme or ancestry.com or or what have you right yeah. and then we also have um you know communities of uh, for instance, rare disease patients and their families self-organizing on Facebook and so on. So, this isn't just this isn't unique to Canada. This is true in other jurisdictions too. But having the regulatory environment keep pace with the um, the needs and 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 wants of the communities as well as the opportunities that exist on the uh, commercial side is an ongoing challenge here. So that's something we're navigating. I think, you know, when it comes to just data sharing more broadly, we have a long history of struggling with this in Canada when it comes to health data. You know, uh, a little anecdote from the side here, you know, when I first, when COVID first hit, you know, my background is not in, not from the medical side. I come from, you know, kind of the fundamental basic sciences. Um, And so I got pulled into a variety of different tables, really looking at linking up hospitals and, um, you know, Sharing genomic data at scale, so that we could start to, you know, viral surveillance, for instance, or large-scale human cohorts uh, that we were we were contemplating, and you know, I had a variety. You know, I remember hearing in a few meetings talking about facts-based medicine and the challenges this was going to pose during the pandemic. And I was thinking, well, if there's ever a time you need evidence, it's it's during a pandemic. Until it was clarified that by facts-based, they didn't mean evidence; they meant fax machine-based uh, systems, <laughs> and that you know, in many ways, when it came to sharing data. Between hospitals, that there were some systems that were still reliant on, fa- on, on 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 outdated technology. I made very clear that we were not going to be sharing any genomic data by fax
0: machine. Sorry to interrupt you. I just have to share this brief anecdote. I, I will not mention the country in question, um, but I was talking to someone who was uh, playing an advisory role to a country that was setting up a, a national genomics program, and this is an, a very highly advanced, uh, te- technically leading country, and. They said, right, well, at the moment, all of the genomic data sits in the hospitals. And you're talking about wanting to try and create a national uh, layer of this for research purposes and so on, the kind of things we've been discussing. How can we get it to the, the National Research Center? And someone in the meeting did suggest faxing it, like, without, without irony, <laughs> and uh, other people had say, well, yeah, yeah. 3.2 3. billion letters, uh, you know, base pairs, kind of, uh, translates into quite a lot of fax paper. we may want to think about, like, another another. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, no kidding.
1: Yeah, no kidding. So, so, but so, but that's the one hand, you know. So the one hand is that there's certainly, I think, systemic issues in Canada. I don't want to say we ignored them, but they were they were proving too challenging during non-pandemic times to sort of overcome. We've come a long way during COVID to addressing these, I would say, more systemic issues, more policy issues, and so on, which is important because the other hand is that we have researchers and we have hospitals. That really are world class. You know, I think about our, our large scale sequencing centers in Toronto and uh, Montreal and Vancouver are absolutely you know top notch. The, the the work that goes on at Sick Kids Hospital or CHIO here in my own province of Ontario, the CHIO is another children's hospital. They are plugged into you know kind of the global ecosystem when it comes to rare disease research. Are leaders in many ways. So we really do have like the like phenomenal activity happening. It's just not linking up. Right, so we are getting world-class standard of care in hospitals. We are getting uh, phenomenal, um, uh, you know, kind of advances happening at the individual researcher and clinician level. Um, but we have, unfortunately, for a number of systemic issues, just challenges in linking that up into the large-scale data sharing that's going to be required to really do the kind of innovation necessary, whether it's on the diagnostics or therapeutic side going forward. This may sound like
0: a sort of very basic question, but why does that matter? Why does it why does it matter to join it up? What are the benefits that you see from increasing that joined upness compared to just having a bunch of centers of excellence?
1: Well, I think it's it's not either or. It's a little bit of a both and. I think we've got you know the centers of excellence exist and that's important and valuable. Um, I just think that we we are going to be leaving opportunity on the table if we don't leverage the strengths from the regions into something that will you know in the end the the where they say the whole is greater than the sum of its parts right if we can link up the data sets that are being created at provincial levels into something national whereby you know hospitals in smaller regions or smaller provinces are able to access large-scale data sets for improved diagnostics for instance that's a huge benefit that's a huge benefit right Ontario maybe Quebec could could conceivably go it alone with large-scale data if they it really, you know, if they really maximize their potential. But some of our smaller provinces that have only got three or four hundred thousand people will never have the data sets large enough to really sustain the kind of diagnostic needs as well never mind the innovation side of things so yeah. so I think that there's real opportunity you know that, that we'll miss never mind you know what we can build off of that when it comes to for instance you know clinical trials and opportunities here Canada is a, a bit of a unique place just from a population perspective we are a reasonably small population spread out geographically of course but uh, because of the history of immigration we have a very diverse population mm. and there's there are real advantages there for for things like clinical trials, for instance. So the companies take care advantage of that, but there's more that we can we can be done there. The last thing I'll say is that, you know when it comes to data and data sharing, another area that, that we spend some time on at Genome Canada and others in, within our ecosystem spend a lot of time on is thinking about data sharing and data governance when it comes to indigenous peoples in Canada. And um, there is a long and justifiable uh, you know, a history of mistrust between the medical establishment and indigenous peoples in canada and, and around the world that you know people on both sides are working hard to you know to repair or to to move move past we support a, a project a phenomenal project called silent genomes which is uh, led by indigenous researchers out of northern bc really looking at they're looking to build a, a biobank of uh, you know indigenous biological samples but they're also focused a lot on these questions of access and governance to uh, around data and thinking about this from a very different perspective, that is informing the work we're doing in in our other projects. So, so we have a variety of different kind of approaches and initiatives that are going on when it comes to data and data sharing in the health space. And some of those are unique to our situation in Canada, but uh, but will no doubt have uh, you know have implications for others.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I was talking to. Andrea Ramirez, who's the CIO at um, All of Us, the, the large US-based sort of genomics and healthcare research uh, program. And certainly a lot of common themes there in terms of the work that that program is doing and that uh, indigenous tribal leaders in the, in the US are doing to kind of build those bridges as well. feels like a very strong theme. Maybe final question on healthcare, and then we can maybe turn to some of the other areas where you guys are so active. Where would you like to be in, let's say, 10 years time with um, genomics in healthcare in Canada?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, like, you know, like everywhere, I would just love to see a, you know greater application of genomics in the clinic in, in areas where we know it can have a big impact. and that that includes rare disease, certainly, but also in cancer. and um you know there's a variety of other uh, other areas, of course, that where it could have a big impact. In Canada, I think the big the big areas, and this is where we're focusing our energy right now, are on um, developing uh, you know, sort of scalable approaches around kind of the federation of data so that, Healthcare providers will have access to the data that they need, uh, wherever they are in the country, and so we're thinking here about you know equitable access. That's gonna that will be a, a challenge, but one that we think we have a path on, from a policy perspective, a technical perspective, and frankly a bit of a culture and practice perspective. So that's one big area. The other area that I think is is you know that is a focus for us and that will be uh, key is. Applying a bit of an equity lens to that data, so certainly, you know, working with um, you know indigenous peoples here and the, those that are leading initiatives uh, in our space will be really important to to ensure that we're building a system that uh, is relevant for the indigenous people in Canada, but also thinking about underrepresented communities, whether those are communities that live in urban uh, environments in Canada or rural environments in Canada. Uh, equitable access to healthcare is a problem uh, everywhere, and you can well imagine in, in a country like Canada. Access in the north, for instance, is very distinct from what you would get in in downtown in our major cities. So, thinking about um, equitable access, but also equitable representation within data sets, is a, is a major uh, focus for us. And then, um, you know we have a you know a lot of work to do on. I guess sort of the social and implementation side. So, how do we make sure that the um, healthcare systems—now, here we're talking about, you know, physicians and nurses and counselors and so on—are um, are 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 working with this kind of information in a way that is very patient-centric, that patients feel empowered by the information they're getting. Um, And that patients are able to have, you know, um, uh, control over what happens with their healthcare based on the kind of information that genomics can provide. So that's not really a technical challenge, right? Those are more systems and social challenges. Um, but are ones that we we can't ignore when, you know, i I have to admit that, like it's it's very easy to get distracted by the the unbelievable scientific and technical progress we've made in the space. And I completely I'm dazzled on a day to day basis at, at what we can do. I really do feel like I'm living in kind of a sci-fi future sometimes. Um, but we can't ignore. The social side of how that science gets applied, and that's both uh, in terms of kind of equity, but also in terms of the systems that we need to make sure that uh, that it maximises impact.
0: Absolutely, and that's a that's a really delicate balance, right? And as you say, so much of that is about empowering the people whose data it is to be involved in making those decisions, not just be kind of passive recipients of um, you know what some self-nominated group of uh, the great and the good or whatever decide is uh, is best. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's interesting actually, it's quite an, an, an interesting segue there I guess between genomics in a healthcare context and genomics in other contexts. We had as a guest on the pod a little while ago Sir Patrick Valance, who's the government's chief scientific advisor. Um, the government office of science published a deliberately provocative piece called Genomics Beyond Healthcare to try and spur other, other government departments to think about how this technology was coming down the road and what it might mean for them. And there was some you know very clearly and clearly labeled kind of speculation in there in, in question form you know could genomics inform sentencing could genomics inform education uh, pathways um could genomics inform uh, all sorts of other things and we certainly had a few anxious uh patients and participants call us up and saying hold on a second are we like the lab rats to kind of create right. gattaca <laughs> you know like what's going on to which of course the answer is no um you know the the way that 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 data is collected and stored is very explicitly for for medical research um, only. Um, But you mentioned um, a bunch of other areas um, that I'd love to get into, like sort of um, agriculture, forestry, fisheries, and sort of climate change and so on. I guess maybe a tiny bit nearer in, do you also have any sort of thinking on other uh, kind of social sciences areas or other areas of government that where genomics could be relevant? Or have you guys kind of parked those kind of questions Uh, to one
1: side well certainly you know we we support a variety of projects that really are looking at some of the you know kind of ethical and social issues around genomics and how those would impact on some of the areas you talked about genome canada we ourselves aren't we don't have any specific activities in justice for instance you know when it comes to human genomics we are uh, really focused on the health side of things outside of kind of the philosophy and ethics and so on, where we do support a fair bit of work in that space. When I, when we think about getting outside of health, it's actually getting outside of humans, I should say. And it's really thinking then about, um, you know, kind of plants and animals and and, and yeah. microbes. Right. And, and there we do a lot of work with, you know, on the government department side, of course, natural resources and agriculture and fisheries and all of those spaces, a lot of work in climate, uh and um uh we you know i can talk a little bit about that the work that we're doing on you know so for instance biodiversity and surveillance um canada is a you know we're a big country i referenced you know the you know the the ge- geographical scope of of canada is immense uh, we have a lot of ocean we have a lot of forest we have a lot of lakes uh and we don't have a ton of people out there just paying attention to kind of like the you know the the, the, the on the ground kind of biodiversity monitoring. It's just, it's impossible to to do large-scale surveillance without, you know, more advanced tools. So we've been working hard to develop tools around eDNA, for instance, environmental DNA. So this is the ability to actually, right, you know, use the the DNA that's shed within a, like a, a water column, for instance, to then be able to, in effect, identify populations of species, not just species composition, but population, and to track that composition over time. And so... We work with, with our, our partners in Quebec. Uh, have uh, Genome Quebec, they have a project actually working with schools that are out there doing water sampling in their own little local regions um, and sending samples in so that they can contribute to like oh. provincial water system monitoring through eDNA projects, for instance. So we do work like that, tracking- so it's almost
0: like uh, in the pandemic, there was a lot of um, both talk about and practice of things like pathogen genomic surveillance through um sewage in cities and so on right to get a sense of like levels of infection this is kind of like the outdoors nature version of uh you know (laughs) pathogen surveillance right yeah absolutely that's
1: exactly right it's doing the same kind of surveillance and we can do this i mean looking for viral dna in wastewater was is phenomenal but we can look for other types of dna you know we're we're actually we're evolving a lot of the surveillance systems that we had we had helped develop uh, during COVID to start looking for markers of uh, antimicrobial resistance, for instance, in wastewater and in environmental systems. Right. So so helping support this kind of technology development um, is a big piece of what we do. Uh, we work in um, you know another area around say biodiversity is we work with a variety of indigenous communities in the north for instance looking at caribou populations so food security in canada food security you know i remember years ago learning that when you live in the north food has fur right uh you you don't live in the arctic and uh, you know grow uh, lentils and 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 corn and so on so caribou populations matter uh, when it comes to food security and those populations have been falling precipitously so we've been working with communities to again look at ways to to use environmental DNA, a DNA that uh, is found in SCAT, for instance, to be able to track populations. And then we're combining that with traditional knowledge from Indigenous communities to be able to actually create a bit of a more uh, holistic picture of how those populations are changing over time and, and, and informing kind of what we can do around conservation. So we have projects like that on climate. We also do a lot of work in agriculture, uh, You know, whether it's on... Um, Improving productivity, of course, agriculture is a major export for Canada, a huge economic sector. So looking at different ways to improve yield and productivity, but also adapt to a changing climate to introduce different different traits when it comes to drought resistance and heat tolerance and so on. So we've been supporting the sequencing of a variety of wild relatives to our major crops like wheat and canola and and lentils uh, and so on, but also looking at mitigation when it comes to livestock and so on. So we have a variety of, of projects in those areas. And then we have, we have some projects you might not expect. We do a lot of work in the energy sector, for instance. So energy is a major export as well for Canada. So we work um, with uh, large-scale energy producers, for instance, when it comes to um, uh, risks around uh, oil spills or cleaning up of tailing ponds. The, the development of microbial communities that can contribute to helping to uh, degrade the products, the byproducts, whether that's of you know oil spills or whether it's from the actual production. Uh, but also when it comes to things like exploration, you know we've we have a research a really phenomenal research project that um, has identified uh, bacteria that uh, that feed off hydrocarbons and uh, so this project is actually looking at ways, to identify these uh these hydrocarbon bacteria in sediment as a way to enrich for possible drilling deposits for instance in a in a way wow. that we, uh, you know so so there's different tools and technologies and we're finding ways to leverage you know the great investments we've made in in a lot of our technologies and platforms leveraging that outside of health to actually support uh, interesting innovation in other sectors
0: incredible and um i remember when the alphafold 2 algorithm came out and was suddenly accurately predicting protein structures and being able to use that to design new proteins and so on one of the big use cases that people were excited about were things like designing proteins that could decompose plastic bags in the ocean and so on are you an optimist for how you know genomics proteins can play a role in these areas around you know as you you mentioned environmental degradation and so on
1: I am a sort of, whatever, bivalent here, right? I'm I'm both optimistic and pessimistic. Like I have to say that um, I'm a huge optimist when it comes to the, the scientific potential. I just, I honestly, it's like week to week, my mind is blown when I see the projects that come in and what we are looking at, what we can do. We have an open project, an open call right now to look at uh, you know, new initiatives to mitigate the impact of climate change in our agriculture and food systems. And the stuff that's coming in is uh, is unreal. It's so creative, it's so phenomenal, it uses amazing technologies. Uh, we're doing a lot of work. We plan to launch something on the circular bioeconomy. Again, really forward and innovative thinking when it comes to thinking about sustainable manufacturing, for instance. So I have enormous faith in our ability to to, to develop technologies and knowledge that is going to, that are going to provide us huge opportunities. The flip side to that, of course, is you know um, I struggle sometimes to keep the same level of faith in our in our social systems, and um, you know certainly we lived with this during COVID when we developed in almost miraculous time uh, these mRNA-based vaccines. Uh, we were able to use genomic data, you know, from the virus, but all sorts of other you know kind of uh, biomanufacturing technologies to create an unbelievable response. Um, but then we saw the social Uh, Reality of uh, systems that struggled to deploy and to accept uh, these technologies. So I think that we we ignore that at our peril. I really do think that we have to invest the same kind of time and energy into thinking about how we ensure that people see the opportunity for their own benefit in these technologies, that we um, ensure that those benefits are shared equitably across not just our own societies but globally. Uh, and that we take seriously some of the risks of you know whether it's hubris on the scientific side or of pushback on the on the public side, we take those seriously because that will be what undermines the the potential that I'm so optimistic about.
0: wow, i don't but I don't think we could get a better manifesto for the future there, right? <laughs> Equity of access, improvements in human health, improvements in the environment, improvements in our ability as a society to kind of translate those scientific breakthroughs into, um, you know, meaningful, scaled improvements, um, in people's lives. That's, um, that's what I'm going to hang on to from this conversation. <laughs> Super impressive. <laughs> Rob, thank you so much for, uh, taking the time to, to share some of your experiences and, um, I guess, hopes and dreams with us. And, uh, I look forward to living in that, uh, that brighter version of the future. Awesome.
1: Well, thanks, Chris. And a big shout out to you guys at Genomics England for all the work you're doing. Uh, and all the work you've done. It's been great working uh, with you and the rest of the gang there. And uh, thanks for the invitation. I really enjoyed this today.
0: Well, that's all for this episode. Thanks for listening to this discussion about the G word and for joining us on this journey to highlight and debate the implications of genomics as it comes to the mainstream of healthcare and society. Remember to subscribe to The G-Word on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you have views on these topics, if you have a suggestion for someone we should interview, then do write to us at podcast at genomicsengland.co.uk. And do remember, if you've enjoyed listening, that giving us a five-star review really helps other people find out about the series. and appreciate it very much. See you on the next episode of The G-Word.